Welcome to The Art of Being a Mum, the podcast where we hear from artists and creative mothers sharing their joys and issues around trying to be a mum and continue to make art. My name's Alison Newman. I'm a singer, songwriter and mother of two boys from regional South Australia. I have a passion for mental wellness and a background in early childhood education. As Susan Rubin Solomon wrote, perhaps the greatest struggle for a woman artist who has or desires children is the struggle against herself. No amount of money, no amount of structural change can entirely resolve the fundamental dilemma for the artist mother, the seeming incompatibility of her two greatest passions. The effect is a divided heart, a split self, the fear that to succeed at one means to fail at the other. Rachel Power is a freelance writer, editor and artist. She has contributed to many publications including Mamma Mia, The Big Issue, Kill Your Darlings and The Age. She has worked as a court illustrator for Channel 9, production editor of Arena Magazine and is currently communications manager for the Australian Education Union, Victoria. Rachel is the author of Alison Rayfish, A Life for Art, The Divided Heart, Art and Motherhood, and Motherhood and Creativity. After having Rachel's second book, The Divided Heart, recommended to me from a number of guests on this podcast, I frantically tracked down the book and read it and was blown away. I was intrigued to meet the woman behind the stories that had resonated with myself and so many others. I reached out to Rachel and she was generous enough to give me this time. Rachel is a mother of two and in this chat we talk not only about her books but the challenges she faced in making them. The Divided Heart is a collection of interviews with artistic mothers including musician Claire Bowditch and actress Rachel Griffith. Rachel's interviewees had such diverse experiences when combining motherhood and art making and I began by asking Rachel her thoughts around this. When I was working up those interviews for the book there were there was crossover themes for pretty much everyone, mm. but you're right. People's ability to cope with those things or their approach to them could all be very different. Yeah, because the the thing that really stuck out for me about that was that Helen and then Helen's daughter had yeah. a completely opposite take on it. Like for Helen, it was just immense and almost catastrophic it was just so in, in all consuming for her and then I felt like mm. her daughter Alice could sort of take it or leave it like her at least that's the impression I got reading it that she was so relaxed about it and you know it wasn't the the, the intensity and I just found that mm. fascinating just in the same family to have such incredible responses. I know isn't that interesting I think it's in part uh, it's in part generational definitely but not entirely. It's definitely also about personality and it's also about art form. Mm. I think different art forms are much easier to do around children than others. And one of the things I also found really interesting was that some people changed art forms as a result. I just do remember that one person changed the kind of art she was doing. So certainly I remember someone talking to me about how they were a painter probably traditionally an oil painter 
um, you know, where there's a lot of setup, a lot of cleanup, all of those things. And she just thought, I can't, you know, I, I can't do this. It's toxic. It's, you know, it's not easy to find time and space to set up and clean up anymore. I'm just going to start finger painting with my kids at the table. And I think that really changed her whole approach to her, the, her art form. And so, you know, it's great when you get those stories of where it's actually, you know, forced a new kind of creativity. The book was written quite a long time ago. And as you would know, I wrote two editions. Mm. So there was an early edition, uh, which um, I, it, when I started the, the Divided Heart, as the book's called, um, I, I was a journalist. So I was used to doing interviews and, but I was also, um, obviously I'd become a mother. I was in my late twenties. Um, and I, I got pregnant in my final year of art school. So I'd been a journalist um, from the age of 17. And then I'd gone back to university in my 20s. And I was part-time. So I was part-time working at, um, for a TV station and part-time um, at uni. And so by my final year of uni, I was pregnant with my, with my first child. Uh, so... I, it was this, you know, I'd finally got myself to art school, was sort of trying to um, do this thing that I really wanted to do, which was um, to write and paint. Uh, and then I had a baby. So <laughs> I, I think for me, it was that shock of um, how to juggle everything. And I just started trying to work out you know, where could I find examples of other people who were going through this or had been through this and how did they manage to, um, yeah, kind of find a way to negotiate these twin passions of parenting and, and creating art. Um, and for me at that stage, being a journalist, I suppose what I was used to doing was researching and interviewing. And so I just started doing that without really having any thoughts about what it would be. I thought I'd probably write an article. And then increasingly as I, and I was just seeking out people I liked, you know, it was just a sort of passion project where I could just, oh, this is a great excuse to talk to these women I admire. Um, and so I set up these interviews, but the interesting thing about it was that it was really interesting, it was really easy to set up the interviews because pretty much everyone I contacted was very keen to talk about this topic and felt that no one else had asked them about it and it hadn't they hadn't had a chance to publicly or, may, or maybe even privately really delve into this experience um, which is not to say it was a new experience obviously for for women it's been in you know an issue for all time but I think maybe you know we're at a point where women sorry I know I'm, I'm sort of carrying on what's interesting to me with hindsight perhaps is that we'd hit this sort of um, point where our, our mothers had been the first generation of 
they're, they're second wave feminists. And so we'd been told a lot about what our expectations for our life could be, you know, what, uh, that we, we could have it all, you know, all of those messages that, that we, were, we were getting and the sense of freedom and ambition that we all have and should have. And then suddenly we have children and realise how compromised that can be and that that is an age-old problem and not really an easy problem to solve <laughs> for <sighs> feminism or for, you know, no matter how liberated you are. So the fact is we, we love our children and we want to be there for them and our children love us and are desperately attached to us and therefore um, finding space and time for something that we want to do for ourselves is incredibly difficult. I'm sort of reminded of some people that that were in the book that that they were people were forced to do things in different ways and through that maybe found better ways to do their art so an example Jen Lush, who's, who I've interviewed recently, that she, because she only had 10 or 15 minutes, she became really, really good at getting things done in 10 or 15 minutes. You know, so that's sort of perhaps learning better ways and more efficient ways for them to do their art. Yeah, that sort of yeah. was the theme that I, that I found a lot too. Oh, yeah, that was one of the strongest themes. So one of the strongest themes, I think, particularly for those who were probably... Um, better at uh, seeing the upsides or experiencing the upsides um, was that sense that they'd spent years kind of baffing about, you know, having 10 cups of coffee, you know, endlessly ruminating and suddenly they had no time. And so it allowed them to do away with all of that fluff and just get on with the job. That was definitely a theme. And yeah, learning how to be um, really quick and efficient with the time with the time that they did have, use it really effectively. And I also I thought what was interesting was people found whole new ways of working in that sense. So I um, interviewed Lisa, who's in who's the poet in the book. Um, she, Lisa Gorton she talked about how she would just go on long walks with her baby in the pram and she would just write a poem in her head as she walked and then get home and quickly get it down. And there were lots of stories like that where people became a lot less precious about their work, which I think is, you know, that that's a great thing for anyone. And I suppose for me, sort of looking at that bigger picture of the way women work, it just felt, it felt kind of gratifying to show up that history of men who have, you know, demanded silence and hold up in their ivory towers and had the had their wives leave their lunch outside the door and you know all of those things. I know that you know I don't want to say that all men are operate have operated this way, but you know there's a strong there's a strong <laughs> there's a lot of evidence that historically men were able to work in very kind of intense, concentrated ways that relied on the servitude of others. And it, it put paid to that. It showed me that no, art does not require that and that men should not be able to demand that either, you know, really. 
it's just been a nice excuse. Yeah. <laughs> and it's luxurious. And if you can work that way, great. But yeah. it shouldn't rely on the work of women to allow men to work that way. Because women can show that it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a prime example of your in your book, you talk about breastfeeding and being writing little notes and then suddenly the kicks of the child's legs will kick them off and then you start again, you know, and finding like writing on yeah. little notes or rem- trying to remember it. You got really good at remembering things and um, mm. yeah, just taking whatever opportunities you could to, to get down what you needed to get down. Yeah, and I, I loved um, the comment from... Um, and I think it was Susan Johnson, who's the writer, who said that she knew she could hold on to eight lines. You know, she knew that that was her maximum if she could just memorise those eight lines and she would get them down as soon as she could, but she worked out that that was her, you know, threshold for how much her brain could carry around. So, yeah, yeah and I do that too. I just sort of rehearse them and rehearse them and rehearse them till I can find a moment. I mean, I had my children before iPhones and I think an iPhone would have changed my life. And, you know, for all the downsides of technology and iPhones, firstly, I think audiobooks would have saved me. You know, that would have been, oh, if I could have just breastfed and listened to books and not have my hand kind of dropping off every time I tried to hold this book for an hour. Or And, you know, I mean, I still love writing by hand and taking notes, but if I could have been tapping away on a phone and writing little notes while breastfeeding, I'm sure I would have been. So, yeah, and I'm sure it's true for songwriting too. And I know Claire Bowditch said that a lot, that she uses, well, probably she used to use some kind of little recording device, but now she uses her phone and would just constantly be recording little snippets of tunes or lyrics that came to her mind. Mm. So, yeah, just really using whatever you can use to whatever tools and whatever time you've got. Yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on the idea of of having support. There's a a quote Mm. in your book that says, to create art once you have children requires the commitment of more than one person. And it followed up by the, the, the Eleanor Dark wrote, the situation I found both humbling and infuriating I can completely relate to that. It's like whatever decision you make as an artist affects somebody else in the family. I think you're right. I mean, that is the most humbling thing, isn't it? That suddenly all all the decisions you would make and all the choices, you know, they were pretty much your own up until that point. I mean, they might have affected your partner or your friends in some ways, but they're not having the kind of profound effect that they can have on a family and on your children. And I guess everyone knows once you have children, if you do have a partner, and even if you're separated from that partner, you it's an it's endless negotiation. And you know, they, it can become quite competitive. And I think that's a real danger. You know, who's having the worst time, who's getting the most time, you know, who's had the most time out. And um, I think, you know, <laughs> for my, for myself. I didn't have grandparents, I didn't have parents around. Um, and my, because my, I, I guess also I had my children quite young. So our, our parents were still working. Uh, so they didn't, and they weren't in the state anyway. <laughs> For a little while, my mother-in-law was, but she, she had a lot else going on. So 
we had no regular support from outside and and we were quite young we didn't have well we still don't have we didn't have money to throw around either you know babysitting is very expensive and um we were both working well I, I wasn't working early on actually I and my partner and I for a while worked part-time each and that was great when we were both working part-time and both looking after the children part-time that felt really ideal because we both understood the pressures of both sides and both roles um and if if you can live on one part-time income for a short time which we could early on while we were still renting and so on um then I think I th you know that was a great way to live but I know that that's not an option and you know it, it, these decisions are really really difficult and so for for a mother yeah it's it's quite a shock I think to feel like you know, everything you want to do with your life now has to be something that's negotiated and and the implications for everyone around you and especially your children have to be considered. What was interesting, there was a few things that were really interesting to me too in that, is that even those women who did have support, and I'm, I think, you know, a supportive partner is essential. If you have a partner and they don't support your right to make art, it is almost impossible once you have children or even without them, but particularly once you have children, if your partner is not going to be supportive of your right to keep making art, I don't know how you could, you know, how either your relationship or your art could survive. But um, in terms of um, the broader support, I think women and their friendships become absolutely essential. And if you can find ways to share the load between you to take turns taking care of each other's children, that kind of thing, I think, becomes really vital. And then I think more broadly, I, this one quote is always stuck in my mind with uh, artist Sarah Tomasetti. So Sarah Tomasetti is a painter, Melbourne painter, and she has a big family. So she married an Italian man, big family, lots of siblings, lots of grandchildren. And the, her parents-in-law will babysit those children when people have to go to work but they wouldn't babysit the children so that she could paint because they just didn't think that was legitimate you know that's just a mother expecting to have some fun or some time off to do this frivolous thing we so they you know they were not going to look after her children to allow her to do that and to me that seemed entirely symbolic of the situation for artists in general perhaps but mm. for in particular yeah that that judgment of what society values I suppose and yeah you're just messing around doing some painting that's you know that's yeah. not that's not a value enough to classify it as as work in inverted commas and particularly yeah. I think for a mother you're that just seems indulgent I think that's just deemed indulgent. Your absolute priority should be looking after your children. And, and I think the message is that you shouldn't really want to paint anymore. You shouldn't really want to have to do these things for yourself. And I think historically, I think historically women wanting to do those things has probably even felt a bit dangerous, you know, because these are women who aren't fitting the norm, who aren't willing to give up their lives to other people's needs. Mm. And, 
you know, you can see that there's a whole history of that being thought felt as very dangerous. And while that may no longer be the case in, you know, that in quite such a dramatic way, I think we still carry that feeling. Oh, absolutely. It's like you're still challenging the status quo, I think. You're still, even the conversation over who's going to do housework, like isn't it already yeah. agreed in some silent sort of <laughs> negotiation that you will take over housework? Like, I know. You know. I mean, the house, I, I, I think of marriage counsellors everywhere and just the, the, the horrible boredom it must be to be constantly dealing with these conversations, these arguments about the housework. It's so huge. I, I feel like the housework conversation is one, yeah, it, it feels massive to me because it is amazing that no matter how much, how much you've assumed you've got an equal partnership it is incredible how housework just seems to fall to the woman over and over and over again and oh that is a really gnarly question like I just I haven't worked through myself why that is because I'm aware it's not only about men's expectations there's something internal too there's something that women internalize that means they take that on and it is actually really difficult to go up against that instinct in ourselves as well as societal expectations and you know it seems so prosaic to bring that down to housework but I feel like housework is very symbolic of that bigger picture for women Helen Garner once talked of the terrific struggle for women, striving to fulfil destinies beyond being wives and mothers. It's terribly sad, she said. It's a very sad thing, a woman trying to be an artist and a mother at the same time. It's a tremendous clash. She trailed off, perhaps aware of having innocently stumbled into one of those quicksand zones where the implications of what you are saying are so enormous and unwieldy that you risk being swallowed up. Sad was the word she used. It's a terribly sad thing for women trying to be an artist and mother at the same time. There's a quote in the book that says, you can never be a mother 100% of the time because you're just an ordinary human being with different aspects to you that are not necessarily to do with gender. Mm. Is it important to you to be more than, I'll say in inverted commas, just a mum? And that's not even just a mum because we know mm. that's not even a correct statement. But <laughs> I'm look, uh, yeah, of of course, yes. I think the big challenge when, and this isn't just about motherhood, but the big challenge for us in our lives, going when we've got all these other demands, is to keep finding our way back to ourselves. And I think that's what artists have always been so good at you know art is about finding your way back to yourself in whatever way over and over again and in doing that I don't mean that that means you're just um self-obsessed or because I think uh, what artists do in in finding their way back to themselves they're finding their way back to everything and everyone you know because art is so universal it's that universal language and then that's why it's such a connector and it's the thing that makes us feel connected. 
to to the world as and and to everything both internal and you know and what um makes us um what, what am I trying to say that you know it's also what's so important beyond us and so yes at the same time I think one of the things that I wanted to sort of get at in writing The Divided Heart is how profound motherhood is and that it shouldn't just be I, I think we've often got an attitude before having children that you know, we're just going to hold on to this self. We're going to hold on to this identity. We've got motherhood's not going to change me. You know, I'm just going to, um, you know, I'm going to have children, but that doesn't mean it's going to change um, my identity. But of course, I, I, you know, I think it'd be pretty impossible to have motherhood not change your identity and your sense of yourself because it's such a dramatic and profound experience. And, you know, particularly for artists who are already you know, on the whole, deep thinking people who are interested in identity and interested in, you know, what what changes us and who we are, then um, then motherhood actually to me presents a real opportunity to, you know, there's whole parts of myself that I think I just never would have had to have encountered, good and bad, without becoming a parent and this would be true for every everyone, every parent, um, mothers and fathers. But of course, as a mother, it's it's very dramatic. It's very transformative because you've actually given birth, and and because of the the way that your children need you, that to me was something I don't think I'd thought about before having children was the particular kind of relationship your children have to you, particularly in those early years, that's so intense and so demanding, um, you know, that it can sort of threaten to obliterate you, you know, in your sense of self. So, you know, holding on to your identities beyond that can, or who your sense of yourself outside of that or beyond that is pretty, pretty difficult. Uh, so, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, something that I felt like in talking to women artists most of them most of them felt like what they really wanted was to have that sense of their experience validated and to feel like it wasn't trivial and that being a mother is actually really significant and should be a theme for art and if 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 you want to make art about it and and the in whatever way it changes you which is not always directly about your children it, I, I'm not suggesting you know everyone just starts <laughs> making pictures of their <laughs> their kids it's more you know you're you're extremely vulnerable as a mother uh, your and your senses are alive and all of those things that can be you know, of great benefit to someone who's creating art. I mean, it, it can be painful too, but that's also good for art. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think all the women I spoke to really were embracing that, that change to their identity. Going, it didn't mean that they were going around, you know, saying, 
oh, what am I trying to say? Because we've got that kind of also that sort of picture of motherhood, don't we, that gets held up for us, that's all loving, all caring, all light and sunshine. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think the great thing about art is it can talk about how motherhood isn't like that. It's also, it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly painful. And we all need to hear that too. Mm-hmm. And I think too, um, there's that, that fine line where society thinks that you're just whinging about your circumstance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, you wanted to be a mum. Yeah. Well, now you've got yeah. it. You can't complain yeah, about yeah. it. How dare you <laughs> complain about this? You know, that's, that's I know. something I find challenging is that it is actually okay to express the feelings and the challenges you have without resenting being a mother, you know? Yeah, of course. And there's yeah. a lot of judgment, I feel, um, associated with that because as soon as you start to complain you judge you're not you just knock down you know I, I it's really strange I mean I I absolutely loved Rachel Cusk's work um book a life's work which I know which is a book about her early experience of of motherhood and I know she's been absolutely torn apart for that book um mainly by other women by other mothers who I think for some reason feel very threatened by a woman complaining or expressing the challenges of motherhood. It is really interesting how defensive people can get. And I, I think it's the thing that I used to say in response to that is if I didn't love my children so much, this wouldn't be so hard. <laughs> no, it's, it's difficult precisely because I love them so much and because I actually really value m- my role as a mother and feel like it's an important one and that I want to be present for my children and that I, you know, and that I feel the risk of mothering taking over, really. I, you mm. know, always still do feel that, that, you know, my my children could take up 100% of my time if I let them and, and I feel that pressure to, you know, both of my kids have, I've only got two kids, but they've both got quite, they're quite, both quite demanding in their different ways and have, you know, one of my children has quite high level need, learning needs. And so I, you know, I still feel that incredible guilt of, of, not using time that I could otherwise put towards her learning needs, you know, using that time for reading or writing or whatever I might do. And this is on top of work. I mean, I also work full time. So the amount of time I've got for those things on top of my job is limited anyway. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's the only response we can make is, you know, this is, it's because mothers, because it's because it is such a big and important job for the whole of society, not just for us. You know, we're creating these people that are going to be out there in the world uh, and who are the next generation. And so it is a very significant role. And if we didn't care about that and we didn't love our children, it wouldn't be challenging and we've got every right to talk about how challenging it is Mm, absolutely a lot of comments there kind of lead into 
the the concept of mum guilt that possibly mm. wouldn't have been around as much when mm. or at least not hashtagged <laughs> when you yeah, were writing yeah. your book mm. yeah how do you feel about that I mean I guess we've sort of addressed that a little bit but how do you feel about that that term mum guilt and and how it impacts upon us I mean I think guilt was in a way the central theme I suppose or one of the central themes because time is so limited and so you know you make choice you've got to make choices about how you use your time and that um yeah I think I I suspect probably there's always been a lot of guilt for mothers but we've got new you know we've got I guess with the birth of psychology uh we all started becoming very conscious of um behaviors and um the impact that our behaviors have on other people and and at that point I suppose mothers started getting certain kinds of messages I mean I, I guess historically there's all sorts of reasons why politically there's been a lot of control over women at different points and what society would like women to do and be you know because it's you know there's been different needs at different times and particularly when there's been kind of baby booms and women are being or when there's been a um a drop in uh they call it do they they say a drop in fertility but it's not a drop in fertility like the birth you know, rate's dropping yeah like when birth rates drop in china yeah, at the moment exactly. where they've now announced they can have three children if they want yeah yeah know. exactly and so there's all all of a sudden all this pressure on women to you know get back into the home and start birthing um and i think when i started writing my book actually it was sort of at the height of this weird mummy wars which i just thought was so awful so it was this kind of public debate, and this is the kind of thing the media loves to grip onto and whip up, is this fight between supposedly um, stay-at-home mums and working mothers, as if any of us are just one of those things, you know, I mean, yeah. and as if I'd say, you know, most women really are very open to the fact that some women love staying home and that's completely completely fine and great if you're in a position to do that and you're supported to do that and and that that's something you want to do and and some women need to and want to work and that's equally fine and you know our children grow up in a family every family is different and we can't all look the same and we never have and you know children are fine <laughs> you know either way if they've got parents who are loving and aware of their needs and you know constructively working on helping them become functional people they're fine whatever and they just children have to deal with whatever family they're given and that's just the way it's always been um but i guess um the guilt thing is big because I think there is a quote from Helen Garner at the very end of my book and I can't quite remember it, but I thought it was really significant, which is something along the lines of, you know, no amount of 
political change or feminist action can completely resolve the problem of women's internal experience of motherhood and guilt. And it just seems to be so intrinsic to women's experience of, of mothering that they can just never be everywhere at once. And that feels like what the, dem the job demands sometimes. You're trying, to, you're trying to be everything to everyone and still sort of retain some hold over, you know, your own interests and keep them somewhere on the list. <laughs> so I don't, yeah, I don't have a very sort of solid answer to that, except that in my experience, it just doesn't seem to be something that anyone can easily do away with. And I don't quite know why that is. Mm. Even that's, the most successful women, I mean, that, that was one of the interesting things. Even the women, the, the most successful women in my book, so the, and by that I don't actually, I, by that I don't mean the most successful because, you know, lots of women who are making incredible art haven't had public success, but the, the women who'd had the most public success didn't feel, and were making squillions, you know, so they could absolutely justify it in that way, didn't feel any less guilty. And that was really interesting to me. So um, Rachel Griffiths, who at that time was doing some LA show that, you know, she would have been making big bucks. Her partner was home full-time. He was a painter, but he was home full-time. Um, they had a nanny. She could throw money at the problem. That, that's her words yeah. whenever she needed yeah. to. Um, that did not stop her feeling constantly guilty. And she also mentioned that... Um, which I thought was really interesting is that she didn't feel that guilty when she went out to work, like literally just had to go to work. But she also wanted to do these classes, like acting classes. She still felt like she wanted to um, help her craft and practice her craft and that she had a lot of room to get better. And she was doing voice classes and she felt incredibly guilty whenever she took time out to do that because that mm -hmm. felt indulgent in a way that perhaps, you know, the job didn't. So, yeah, look, I, I don't know how, yeah, <laughs> I don't have an easy answer for that one. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think it's a topic that people will be talking about till the end of time. <laughs> yeah, much. I think so. But there's no yeah. such thing as dad guilt, is there? Like, really? Well, I don't know. I mean, is isn't there? that interesting? And that's why I'm, I keep coming back to this idea that there is something different. Because, you know, that was the other question I got constantly as you can imagine, when I when I first put these editions out and I was doing lots of festivals and radio and blah, 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 I would constantly get that question. Why haven't you included men? Why haven't you included fathers? Um, you know, there are lots of artist fathers out there doing it tough as well. And I don't doubt that. My answer to that was like, write your own book. I'd love to read that book. You know, if, if men feel so strongly about this, then one of these artist fathers should write that book because I, I think it would be really interesting to hear about how, um, how men are experiencing their, this role. And, you know, especially because times are changing and perhaps a lot of male artists are the ones home with children if their partners are in the, the more conventional workforce. So, you know, 
I'm still waiting for that book. But I think that one of the reasons that book hasn't happened is because clearly the experience for women is different and arguably more acute. And I don't think men do on the whole experience that guilt, that sense of pressure, that sense of feeling like they're meant to be in a million places at once. Yeah, I, and, and I think that's partly because women don't just take on, well, I think it's because women do take on, by and large, the physical load of family life, but also, by and large, the emotional load of family life. And I think that probably is just something intrinsic about, you know, overall women's makeup. I mean, I, I'm not saying that men don't care. Of course they do. And a lot of men and a lot, they, you know, there are a lot of single fathers out there who've had to, had to really take this on. But um, I think that emotional load is by and large carried by women. And usually that includes the kind of, care they have to have for their partners as well as their children and then also I think women's friendships take up a lot of time because women tend to be in a caring role for a lot of people in their lives not just their immediate family you know they've got important loyalties to their friends to their parents you know and so on that often also take up a hell of a lot of time the writer Anna Maria Deloso said, it's assumed that if you're serious about being an artist, you don't have small children. You make a choice early in your career that if you're a woman and you're going to be an artist, that you can't have children. Because if you have children, then you can't be an artist. I wanted to ask you actually, I saw in your bio online that you did a book um, about Alison Refish. Um, yeah. And I'm interested to know because this is, I think, was it published back in the early 2000s? Is that right? Yeah. Um, so it was almost that, like a uni thesis. <laughs> right. So you wouldn't yeah. have been anywhere in this headspace when you did that book about Alison? No. Because it would not have been all. very interesting because I read that mm. she had a child, a 13 year old child, and left. Mm. Mm. to go off to England to pursue a life of art when she was 33, left her child, left her husband, and off she went. Yeah. And I just yeah. thought, gosh, it would have been good to speak to her about that. I know. Like, would you imagine? Have, I interviewed her daughter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess I've always been interested in women artists and I've always been interested in, I mean, I suppose I grew up probably um, enthralled by male artists. And it took me a long time to realise that, that women's art had been really uh, under-recognised. And once I started sort of thinking about that, I really started looking at Australian women artists and how many amazing women artists there were who we'd never heard of. And so... Um, and actually, my my dad is really interested in Australian women artists too, and he he actually collects art. You know, he goes to auctions and finds these, you know, unheard of artists in 
job lots and that kind of thing. And he started collecting these small paintings by um, lots of women artists actually, but one of them was Alison Rayfish. And so um, he started just doing a bit of research and then we started researching her together. And I, I was still at uni and I was, I've never, I've, I've never gone on to do any sort of further study because as I said, by the time I'd finished my undergraduate degree, I was, um, I was pregnant. So, um, so I didn't have a chance to do a thesis, which is a shame because it actually would have been a really good thesis. So in a way, I just sort of wrote my own thesis um, while at uni. And I had a lovely, um, I had a lovely art history lecture, lecturer at uni called Ken Vark, who was very encouraging. And I just did this in my sort of spare time. Um, and so I, yeah, I, as you say, I wasn't, I, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of the, of the seriousness of that. But I, I guess what I became aware of is that all women then to be taken seriously as an artist, as an Australian, you pretty much had to make it in the UK. So people tended to go to the UK, you know, get hung at the salon, you know, get some exhibitions there, get some recognition there, and then come back if they came back. I mean, a lot never came back, but, but you know, if they could make it in the UK, then they could be recognised in Australia. Very few artists sort of managed to make a name for themselves purely within Australia in that time. And we're talking early 1900s. Um, and Alison Rayfish was sort of working in the, the 20s, 30s and 40s. Uh, and so I suppose, at, I suppose she is an example of a woman who put her art first and decided that art was more important to her than family. And yeah, kind of unbelievably, I guess. And not in the sense that I suppose it was also a time where I think women had to make a choice. The, the, the choice felt stark. You couldn't live both lives. I mean, I know some women did. Of course, there were women artists who had children. Um, but maybe for many, it felt that you, you either had to choose to become a wife and mother or you could be an artist, but you couldn't easily be both. And I think art obviously felt important enough to her that she felt like she had to make this choice. And maybe she decided that once her daughter was 13 and at boarding school was old enough to, to live without her. And she took off to the UK, yeah, for a very, very long time. And not only that, yeah, left her husband and, and took up with another man, a fellow artist, a fellow Australian artist and never went back or never went back to Australia, but never went back to her husband. So, yeah, it's funny, isn't it, that this didn't have as much significance for me at that, in terms of the, the ongoing interest I would have, as I realised at the time. And now I can see the kind of interesting link. Mm. It's, yeah, it's almost like, yeah, you had to experience motherhood yourself to get in that that space, you can't you can't get a, a really good take on it by observing it from outside. Um, no. What was it like I talking think it, to her daughter? What what 
I mean, I've yeah. read a little bit online of what her daughter has said, but um, yeah, mm. what, what was that like? Yeah, her daughter's um, Peggy. She, um, there was a sense that she, she was pretty uh, closed about it, I would say. So she, she was really proud of her mother. She was really proud of her mother's work. And she, so she had that admiration for her mother. And I think her, her relationship with her mother in adulthood was actually quite okay. But I, I could really sense the hurt and the pain. But I guess she had that sort of stiff upper lip and wasn't really fully admitting to, to that by the time I interviewed her, which was pretty late in her life. So she'd probably had a lot of time to, you know, find a way to feel resolved about it. So in, when I spoke to her, she was actually pretty sympathetic and understanding about the position that her mother was in. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah surprisingly so. Yeah, that, that's very... Yeah, I don't even know what the words are. It's quite incredible. Um, mm. Do you think that Alison felt like the era she was living in, there was this expectation that you just got married and had children and that was it. So she yeah. just had to do it and it wasn't too, yeah. she was stuck in that, that she just sort of went, oh, God, now I've got to, she almost like she put part of herself aside for a little while until, like you said, her daughter was 13 and she felt like she could probably live without her and then she went right yeah. oh, my life's going to start again now I'm picking up where I left off basically and, and off she went yeah exactly yeah. I, I think that yeah there was an expectation the man she married was quite a successful businessman so I guess she probably the the security of that was probably appealing because I don't think she came well you know she came from a very interesting educated family but, you know, no woman could easily support herself at that time. And so, yeah, I think absolutely. She, she married because that was the, the expectation and probably for that security. I think by all accounts, he was a very devoted father. So that probably helped her leave. Mm. But, um, I, yeah, I think that's right. She the the urgency or the need to make art the absolute centre of her life. I think that probably was always there. And then by the time she felt she could make the break, she, yeah, I think she, she was one of those people that wanted and needed to paint all day, every day. And I think that's what she did. Mm -hmm. It was just so strong for her that, that nothing else came close it was like she just yeah. existed to paint yeah yeah oh one thing I wanted to mention there was something that you, you touched on in your book about um you said why didn't anyone tell me it would be like this um it was to do with the brutal fact of time prior to having a baby I had no real concept of time and I just wanted to say how much I related to that is that I thought to myself what did I actually do with my time before I had children like I just thought 
I must have wasted a lot of time. <laughs> like I know. Oh gosh. I know. I mean, it is so weird that feeling of before and after in terms of your relationship with time. It because now I still feel like I've, you know, those tiny windows that you've got to, you feel like there are a million things competing for that, you know, like creativity, I don't know, paying bills, exercise, <laughs> seeing, catching up with a friend, uh, I don't know, meditating. If you meditate, <laughs> I don't know what, I just, not to mention how, you know, you could, yeah, the demands are so big and then you feel like you've got all these little windows and if uh, as an artist you would you would know if you don't grip onto those moments and shut everything else out, that time can just be eaten up in a flash before you've even thought about it. I mean, I, I remember I would sort of start walking towards my desk thinking, yes, I'm going to write, I'm going to write. And then I would find myself picking up the washing basket and out in the laundry and then I'd think, hold on, how did I get here? I didn't, wasn't I making my way to the desk? It, it, it's like this, I, I, I'm not good at that at all. I mean, increasingly I, I felt like I get why I was the one who wrote that book because I'm really bad at this and I needed other people to tell me, you know, if you want to make art, you are going to have to stay so strong to shut all the other demands out. You have to, and the other thing I think that the message that I felt came through really strongly was that nothing else and no one else is going to give you that permission. You are going to have to give yourself that permission to create art. You know, it's not going to come on a platter. Probably everyone else is going to be quite happy if you give it away, actually. I mean, not, not the people who love the work that you make. But, you know, in your kids and maybe even your partner or maybe even your family would be quite relieved if you, because <laughs> it's a struggle and it creates a lot of angst. And so, yeah, you've, you've, I mean, I don't know. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like you've got to stay really strong in that, in that need and that sort of determination to yeah. create space for it? Absolutely. Because if you don't, I feel like you lose a part of who you are. Um, yeah. I really do. Yeah. And like you said, yeah. you're the only person that can give yourself permission and thus the divided heart. Like it's it's the perfect yeah. analogy. It's you either do something that might seem like you're neglecting something else, but if you don't do that thing, then you're neglecting yourself. So yeah. <laughs> it's just this right, constant. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think actually neglecting yourself, you might not realise it early on, but as time goes on, if you do neglect yourself for too long, particularly with something like this, I mean, for everyone it's different, you know, what, what amounts to neglecting themselves. But in terms of art, which I think is so intrinsic um, to people, for people who need to make art, it's, it's actually really dangerous to neglect that part of yourself it becomes increasingly dangerous because then you you can actually become quite hollow and yeah I think if we 
if we allow ourselves to just merely become functional without addressing all those other very important emotional and creative needs that we have, we are not going to be a good role model for our children because our children need to see people around them who do the things that they love to do and that dedicate themselves to the things that they feel are important. And that also, um, I think that they, they see that art is real, you know, that art is meaningful and that you can have a life of art and it's not, um, it's not trivial and it's not indulgent. It's, it's important. So, yeah, I think you've got to keep that in mind too. You know, kids don't want, well, maybe they do, maybe they'd love a, a, a you know, vacuous automaton looking after them, but I don't know. <laughs> I think, I think actually, you know, much more important to have real relationships within families, real people, you know, that kids see, get a chance to see the full person that their parents are. Mm. That we allow them to see, you know, different ways of living and being. So, yeah, I, I think that's, that's something everyone's got to remember, not only for themselves, that it's spiritually essential to maintain those things so that you don't become miserable and resentful because yeah. resentment is a big thing and resentment is toxic so but also yeah for for our children to have that that picture of what's possible mm. do you find your children now as they're they're growing up do they see do they see what you you're doing in your career and your art and they um is it important for you that they recognize I guess, the importance of what you're doing and contributing to the world? Well, I mean, I can't speak for myself very well because I haven't, you know, I mean, I do keep writing all the time, but I haven't, I mean, I've actually found it incredibly difficult to maintain my own writing uh, while I've been raising children and, and working. Um, I also think that when you work in a conventional job, that's also challenging. It's really challenging to move well I find it challenging to move between those two modes because that's the other difficulty with art art requires a lot of kind of quiet musing and space and it actually is a kind of it is a way of being as much as it is a practice and I I actually funnily enough having children I think hasn't been as challenging for me as time has gone on as working has been to maintaining that way of being because there's so many there's there's so many lovely things about having children too that I think are quite, fit quite beautifully with a creative life but work is challenging and work is related because I work because I have to help support my family um, in a way that I might not have had to if I'd not chosen to have children I might have been able to work less and make more time for art um, but I do my my daughter is a big reader now and which is great because as I said she's had to really overcome some massive learning difficulties and because of that I think 
because we worked so hard on her reading, it's made her a reader, which is, and so she really loves talking about books and she really loves talking about writing. And she's constantly encouraging me now. So to have a child that says, you've got to write, you should write, you should write more, you know, is actually really sweet. And I really value that. My son, who's just obsessed with footy, is totally oblivious. But (laughs) it's all right. (laughs) So, so yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I... I, I feel really lucky though that I think I feel like I've got a, a real relationship with my kids. They understand who I am. They know I've got complex needs and they're, they're very, you know, I feel like they see me as much as anyone ever sees their mum as a, you know, real person. They see me as a real person. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> they have been quite open about, you know, my, without without directly sort of burdening them with with it. I have been at times quite open about my frustrations and, you know, my desires to be more creative. And so, you know, I don't think there's any harm in harm in that. Um, I don't sort of want to, I don't want to be hanging out for retirement though. My, my children are 16 and 19 now. And so I'm feeling much closer to having that time where it's amazing how you think 16 and 19, you know, you think, oh, well, you should be completely free now. Maybe some people would be, but no. <laughs> like getting my son through year 12 was like one of the most hellish years I've ever had, maybe particularly because it was in lockdown. So getting a child through year 12 while you're basically at home doing remote learning is something I don't ever want to have to do again. But um. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like I'm getting closer to not so much just time and space, but my mind being my own and not having to be as full of everyone else's needs as it used to have to be. So, you know, there's liberation ahead (laughs) and hopefully more, yeah, more creative space and time. I mean, I've sort of written, I've written a novel in draft form in in the most ridiculous bits and pieces over the most ridiculous number of years it's embarrassing but I'm hoping that you know at some point it will take shape Mm, fantastic because I was actually going to ask you if you if you got sort of obviously you you would have projects you're working on but is there is there something that is close to being shared with the world I think probably it's a few years off yet, but I have finally, you know, I've inched, I've inched ahead. The funny thing too I've found is that I think probably because I've struggled so much to have time, I'll often start something new and then I'll get into it and then I'll look back at something I wrote 10 years ago, 10 years ago and go, oh, my God, it's actually the same novel. I've been writing the same novel for 15 years and it, yeah, it's funny how the themes come back and back and back. And actually, weirdly, no matter how much I try to get away from it, the novel that I've been working up is absolutely about women and art. And it just seems to be <laughs> this preoccupation. Um, and so that is what I'm weirdly writing about. And 
I'm really hoping that in, you know, I'll get enough time in the next few years to actually um, pull it all together and have it make sense enough to be something that could be, yeah, published. We'll see, fingers crossed. Oh, I wish you a lot of luck with that. That sounds fantastic. Thanks. <laughs> I'll need it.